to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. My name is Jeff Myers, one of the pastors here. So good to see you. If you came in late, we put together 80, over 80,000 meal packs to send to our mission partners in Guatemala. There is a mission team you can sign up for that is going to help distribute that, uh, those packets uh, in the next couple months. So if you're interested, go to the church website to see about that. In our church, uh, with, you know, four different services, you know, it's a big church. It can be hard uh, to meet folks, meet folks in different services, different places. And so we try to shrink the size of the congregation sometimes. One of the ways we do that is by hosting retreats. And we have a women's and a men's retreat that are coming up. So if you're interested, make sure you sign up. We've got uh, information about it in the worship guides. You go to roswellpress.org to hear more about that. And also, as as Presbyterians, we have what's called a session. And the session is the ruling body of the church, and it's made up of elders. And we elect elders to govern us and guide us for the next three years. And we're taking nominations outside the gym doors, there's some boxes with nominating forms. If you know of somebody who's a member, who seems like a great leader, and would be a great person to serve on session, nominate them, and that nomination will go to the nominating team. We're looking for a great uh, class of leadership. I know a lot of people were traveling last weekend, and Scott Weimer, in our sermon series Help, gave a great sermon about how God can sustain us in the weariness and through the weariness of life. And he really spoke out of his own personal experience. And I think it was really meaningful for those of us who are here. So if you missed it, go to the roswellpress.org, check it out. Um, I think it'll really be a blessing to you. Well, today, our scripture passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. It's only one verse, Matthew 5, verse 4. Here it is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask that in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you might speak as only you can speak, that it wouldn't be my words, but it would be your words. And Lord, this is a topic that a lot of us would rather avoid, not think about, get distracted from. And so Lord, I pray we might focus in and hear whatever you have to say to us so that we might leave as different people than when we entered. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many of the world's problems are a direct result of unprocessed pain. Are you afraid to grieve? Do you find it trouble, troubling to lament? Hard to mourn? In preparation for today, I was thinking back. When was the first time that I really had to wrestle with the emotions of grief and sadness? And it took me back to 30 years, almost 30 years ago. It's the morning of November 1st. A phone call came in while I was still in bed. My mom comes downstairs to get me and says, your best friend Nate, his mom's on the phone. So I wipe the sleep from my eyes and I go upstairs and I get on the phone 
And Nate's mom says, Nate is on the couch crying. We just received word that your friend Shelly died by suicide last night. I mean, and Shelly was a one of a kind kind of person. She was our friend. She was the class president. She was the person that would stop in the hall between second and third period and we'd have a conversation. She was one of those people that had such a bright future. She looked like she had it all together. I'll never forget what happened next. Dennis was coming to pick me up to go to school. And Dennis had been friends with Shelly since they were children. And when he pulled up, I could tell he didn't and hadn't received the news. And I remember as I got into his car, the Wallflower song, One Headlight, was playing. And I had to tell him about the tragedy. We arrived at the school. They ushered us into the faculty lounge. They brought in counselors to talk to us. Everyone responded differently. Some people wept and cried. Others left to go get high. Some sat around and shared stories. I felt in a daze. What was I supposed to do with these emotions that I had not felt before? What do I do with my grief and sadness? How do I lament? I got news for you, folks. In this life, eventually, you are going to encounter the unholy trinity of disease, death, and despair. And how are we going to process that pain that we feel? How are we going to find the blessing in mourning that Jesus talks about? Today, I think it would be good to turn to the life of Jesus, to look at a time when he experienced grief and sadness for himself. One such story occurs in John 11. Jesus is friends with two sisters and their brother Lazarus. They live in a little village named Bethany. And Jesus happens to be traveling in a nearby town. When Lazarus comes down, he gets sick. So Mary and Martha, his sisters, send word to Jesus. Jesus, we need you here. Well, Jesus doesn't come quickly. He waits a couple days, in fact. And over those couple days, Lazarus gets sicker and sicker, and then he dies. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus is in the tomb. There are mourners outside grieving. And everyone is asking, why didn't Jesus come sooner? And so as he walks up to the house, Martha walks out and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think Martha is saying this with a little anger in her voice. She knows how far away Jesus was, how long it should have taken him to get there. Why did you wait? My brother didn't have to die. You could have saved him. Have you ever felt the sting of tragedy? Have you ever prayed, why God, and not gotten an answer? Have you asked, if you're so powerful... Why don't you come quickly? We will all experience the death of a loved one, the devastation of a natural disaster, the inexplicability of mental illness. We will all encounter death and disease and despair. The question becomes, 
how we deal with the encounter. I think we have three options. The first option I call the optimist option. After Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I can just see Martha rolling her eyes at Jesus. She's exhausted from mourning. She's angry for Jesus taking so long. And then he has the gall to say, oh, you're going to see him, your brother, one day in heaven. Have you ever been sad and depressed, maybe in grief? Somebody says, oh, don't be sad, it'll all work out. Don't worry, be happy. It's all going to work out in the end. And it's like, thanks a lot. I think that's what Martha thinks Jesus is saying here. She thinks he's being an optimist in the face of tragedy. This reminds me of that great scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The black knight ambushes King Arthur and challenges him to a duel. Arthur accepts and they begin to fight, swinging their swords wildly. Arthur slices off one of the knight's arms and he says, tis but a scratch. The knight continues to swing wildly and King Arthur cuts off the other arm and he kneels down to pray and the knight runs over and kicks him in the head. King Arthur's like, what are you doing? And the knight says, it's just a flesh wound. Arthur decisively ends the duel when he cuts off the knight's legs. And having lost all his major appendages, the knight declares, let's call it a draw. We know this is funny because the black knight is being absurdly optimistic. He's undergone a terrible defeat. He's ignoring the reality of his situation. I think when we say, don't worry, be happy in the face of tragedy, when we say it'll all work out in the end, we are being like the Black Knight. We are being Panglossian Christians. Told you a couple weeks ago what Panglossian means. It means to be inappropriately optimistic. Now, do you know where this word Panglossian comes from? Yeah. <laughs> She's a plant. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, young lady. <laughs> You're going to be able to take this to school and impress your friends. Okay, the most famous philosopher who is Panglossian occurred in the 17th century. His name was Gottfried Leibniz. And he taught that we live in the best of all possible worlds possible. Along came this French writer and intellectual named Voltaire. And he thought Leibniz's position was absurd. So absurd that he wrote this satirical novella called Candide. Voltaire wants to challenge his enlightenment optimists who think that the world is just getting better and better and better. Candide is the central character in the story. He's raised and mentored by a young scholar named Pangloss. Pangloss believes what Leibniz did, that all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. And the book follows Candide and Pangloss on their tours. 
And at one point, Pangloss and Candide are on a ship, and they shipwreck outside Lisbon, Portugal. When they swim to shore there in Lisbon, they undergo an earthquake, a tsunami, and a fire breaks out. And in the back of his mind, Voltaire's got real events, the Seven-Year War and the 1755 earthquake and fire that happened in Lisbon. And so Pangloss and Candide walk around, and there are thousands and thousands of people who are in pain and suffering, who are dying. And Pangloss goes up to them and continues to repeat, we live in the best of all possible worlds. We live in the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire is saying, it's absurd to think that. But the Panglossian cannot mourn. The Panglossian cannot grieve if he does not admit that there are some things that are tragic. There's sadness that needs to be grieved. There's catastrophes that must be mourned. The idea that this is the best of all possible worlds is absurd. Don't be a Panglossian Christian. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what we might call deathly despair. As Martha talks to Jesus, her sister Mary sits at home on the verge of despair. She's wondering, does death have the final word on my brother Lazarus' life? Is death the final word on my life? Is death going to triumph over all of life? This option confronts us just like it did Mary. I'm sure there's been points in your life where you've stared into the abyss and said, is death all there is? Because we'll all confront death eventually. As Benjamin Franklin said, there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. And one of the best places to see the implications of what this despair looks like in life without God is in the films of Woody Allen. We're going to talk about match point, crimes and misdemeanors is another good one that makes this point. One scene at the beginning of match point is where the movie clearly juxtaposes the options Alan thinks we have in life. We either have despair or the risk of faith. One night, Chris is at dinner with his fiancee, Eleanor, his brother Tom, and Tom's girlfriend, Nola. They're at dinner talking about faith, and Tom says, what is it the pastor used to say? Despair is the path of least resistance? And then Chris interrupts with great conviction. He says, I believe that faith is the path of least resistance. And Alan is laying out the options, faith or despair. Well, Chris rejects faith, and he chooses despair. And the rest of the film shows the implications of Chris's decision. Chris marries Eleanor, but he eventually starts up an affair with Nola. As Chris falls further into despair, he rejects all morality. When Nola becomes pregnant, he murders her. Despair rules the day in Alan's world. That's his moral outlook. Listen to this. Alan once wrote, We are at a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. I pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Giving into death's despair is bleak. Deathly despair means it's 
grief all the way down. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no end to our pain. We would, do, we would be well to remember the wise words of the spiritual writer Richard Rohr, who says, if we do not transform our pain, we most assuredly will transmit it. If we do not transform our pain, we most assuredly will transmit it. And this is why Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let us look at the third option. As he's talking with Martha on the edge of despair, knowing that her brother is dead and the future will never be the same, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What do you believe is the fundamental bedrock of reality, of the world? Is it cheap, inappropriate optimism? Is it the despair of death has the final word? Jesus offers us another option. He says, we can have life in him. And if this is the case, this means we can have hope. Even amidst the disease and despair and death in our world, we can have hope. There are three implications of Christian hope. I love, if you're familiar with this story, you know that Jesus is going to go on to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so as he walks to the tomb, he encounters Mary in her deep grief. And he looks at the mourners. And the Bible tells us Jesus was deeply moved. And he asks them, where have you laid Lazarus? And so they take him to the grave, to the tomb. And there at the tomb, we have a verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he weeps. Christian hope doesn't mean we can't cry. It doesn't mean you can't experience grief and sadness. Jesus doesn't try to hold it all together or put a brave face on. He doesn't act like everything is going to be okay. He meets the mourners in their sadness. Christian hope means we can be with people where they are. We mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, grieve with those who grieve. Jesus wept. Christian hope is an invitation to grieve freely. Even though he knows he's about to work a miracle, Jesus wept. The second aspect of Christian hope is whenever we confront a tragic situation, we know we cannot make it all good, but we can do some good. Jesus weeps with the mourners and then he walks over to the tomb and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He brings the dead back to life. Now we know that Lazarus eventually goes on to die again. He doesn't live forever. Jesus hasn't made it all good, but he's done some good. And in the face of tragedy, we cannot make things all good, but we can do some good. And then the third aspect of Christian hope is that we don't do this alone. We do it 
is a part of a hopeful community. We're in this together. We're centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ that says life triumphs over death. Death, disease, and despair do not have the final word on any of our lives. Therefore, we can have hope. My favorite book about Christian hope was written by a Princeton seminary performer, seminary professor named Christian Becker. The book is titled Suffering and Hope. It's a theological response to his life experience. Chris was born in a small village in Holland in 1924. Germany became occupiers of Holland. Eventually, Jews began disappearing from the streets. Eventually, Chris was deported to Berlin, where he contracted typhus, who was sent to the hospital, eventually kicked out of the hospital so they could make room for Nazi soldiers. He was admitted to another hospital, and in his hospital room, there was a young boy there who had been beaten by a German SS officer. Three days later, he dies. And amidst all of this pain and agony and suffering, Chris has a profound spiritual experience that he summarizes by saying, only God is real. He writes these words in this book. It befits a Christian to raise a protest against every form of senseless suffering because it is contrary to God's will that the only realistic hope a Christian can cherish if he or she is not to succumb to despair is the apocalyptic hope in God's eventual triumph over the power of death. And then he goes on to write, God's final triumph is already casting its rays into our present world. However opaque those rays often are and however much they seem contradicted by the empirical reality of our present world. I love that image, that God's rays are shining into our present world and that we are called to receive them and reflect them amidst the disease and death and despair we see in the world. It is this conviction that leads the Apostle Paul to write to the church in Thessalonica, we want you to be quite certain about those who have died to make sure that you do not grieve about them like the other people who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and that it will be the same for those who have died in Jesus. God will bring them with him. And therefore, friends, because of this Christian hope that we can have, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this good news we have in Jesus. I pray that we might feel your light shining, casting its rays into our present world, and that we might reflect that light to a world that desperately needs it. We thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.